Luke 4, 16 through 22. And as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Thanks, Chris. If you have your Bibles, again, we'll be in Luke. Um, today we're going to kind of move through a few different pieces, but um, the gracious words which Jesus spoke um, are the same words that as, uh, as Bethany read for us, the same words that spoke life into existence, right? The same words that spoke life into existence set the plumb line true. The solid word himself now speaks of good news to those in need. Good news to those who suffer a world off kilter, out of balance, due to deceptive invention and cohesive control, coercive control. The word has come to speak into existence, just as it did the stars. Liberty to the captives, whose true selves are bound by voices internally and externally, sometimes whispering and other times shouting, an ever-morphing alternative of purpose, success, identity of a good life. The word speaking into being the recovery of sight to those who once saw clearly who and whose they were, but who find themselves blindly following or aimlessly living. The word speaks, and at the moment comes freedom of those burdened rather than flourishing, whose authentic God-related personhood is pressed down by systems and structures, both religious and secular. The universe-creating speaking, it is good once more, and the Lord's favor is now. His affectionate satisfaction drenching those who are poor, those who recognize their need and lack the resources to meet their need alone. These are the words of Jesus that he spoke at the beginning of his ministry. Gracious, powerful words setting the course for everything that he preached, proclaimed, everything that he taught in his actions. In other words, set the tone for his works, Jesus' works. It's the works of Jesus manifested by these words, these words becoming flesh which his apprentices and followers and friends are meant to bear witness to, which as we talked about last week, that we're meant to bear witness to, right? That we're to go, and just as Jesus proclaimed the good news, we're to proclaim the good news, the liberty, the recovery of sight, the favor of the Lord to the whole of creation. We're to be witnesses to the word made manifest in us and around us to the end of the earth. The works which we have wrestled through, the struggles of faith with God, discovering that in our wrestling, faith is not lost to naivety or nor acculturation, but instead blossoms into sight, becoming the truthful vision of the world, ourselves and our God. As the psalmist said for us last week, when our soul was embittered, when we were pricked in heart, when we, we were unsettled in our faith and not meeting, and faith was a struggle for us, we were brutish and ignorant. We were like stubborn beasts with, who, with God. But nevertheless, even in our own wrestling with God, acting like beasts towards God, ones who have to be pulled along in our stubbornness. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my heavenly Father is the strength of my heart. The Son, my portion, my best friend forever. Those who leave you fall apart, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. That I may tell of the things that you've done. The freedom that you have brought to me, for me, and into the lives of others. A vision we now give testimony to, sharing with one another, friend and neighbor, our fellow poor, right? As recipients of the word made flesh, we now witness are witnesses to the works of the word in our lives and the lives of others. That's what being received into glory actually means. When the psalmist says, afterwards you receive me into glory, after this wrestle where faith becomes sight, I'll be received into your glory. I'll be given not merely salvation, but vocation, in which we are redeemed, those of us who are redeemed are now to resume the task that God envisioned for us, the strength envisioned for us, our friend envisioned for us, our refuge envisioned for us. A way of living that speaks, that is word-creating life, a way of speaking that is truth, that God is still at work and working today. Perhaps of all the four Gospels, Luke is best uh, suited to show us how to live and speak and step with this life that we now live post-Easter, right? This life and step with the Word becoming flesh. While each of the Gospels contains the words and works of Jesus, only Luke includes a special emphasis on a particular part of Jesus' life that I think is uh, super helpful for us who are not attempting to simply acknowledge what we believe to be true, but live what we believe to be true, right? That's not really our desire, isn't it? They're like, as much as we love to sing the songs of praise and of freedom, our desire is to live that, right? We desire, and we listen, we desire not just to live that ourselves, but we desire that for those around us, those closest to us, our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, right? We desire life free, the good news, right? So how do we go about living that? Well, there's a particular part of Luke's gospel that I think Jesus helps us as ones who get to witness it, experience it in our own lives and bear witness to it, helps us figure out how to do that. What to say, how to say it, how to live in a way that allows us to be in step with the word that is life. And so to kind of help us understand that, like I just kind of want to give us a little bit of a kind of a picture of Luke this morning. So here's kind of how Luke is structured. Chapters one through three of Luke um, connect Jesus' story to the story. Now, if you're familiar with the with the, the first part of Luke, the first couple of chapters are the, Jesus, the the Christmas story, right? It's the narrative of the proclamation the, the, through uh, through angels and prophecies of the Messiah coming, of an immaculate conception, and of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, fitting and connecting to all the stories of the Old Testament, right? That have promised and prophesied to this moment through angels, through prophecies, and then in poems of deep remembering and praise like Mary's Magnificent in chapter two, like there's this connection into I'm a part of something in history happening for history in this very moment. Prayers of realized peace that come in Zechariah's uh, prophecy and in Simeon's um, 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 uh, prophetic prayer and in Anna's prayer of praise, that these things that they've waited for for generations is coming true in the moment in Jesus. All the way to a point in the in chapter uh, the end of or the first part of uh, end of chapter two, where Jesus himself, a little bit older, having been born now, right, is growing up, finds himself in the synagogue. His parents have, have lost him. Come find him, and what does he say? He says almost in a prophetic way, "I'm where else would you find me but my father's house?" 
that he knows that he's come in a part of something that has been told for history that the Lord's anointed his own son would come into the world for the world. And then from this boy's self-disclosure, in chapter 3, we discover a, a crazy guy in the wilderness, a voice that prepares the path, this John the Baptist who comes in and who's making the way straight, kind of paving the way for the Messiah to come, for the anointed one to come. All of this has been testified to in the past and in the prophets. But just in case we're confused and we're not quite sure that Jesus' story connects to the old story, if you want, you can turn there. Luke, in chapter 3, before Jesus' ministry, gives us this little genealogy of Jesus. And no, we're not going to walk through the genealogy. That's not the, that's not the goal today, right? But it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. That's 23. Then there's this whole list, right? This, this is everybody's favorite part of scripture. We all love going through these, right? This is, these are awesome. Um, there's this whole list, and he's just, he's just walking through. The, the son of Heli, the son of um, Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, and keeps going. Well, but then we get all the way down into verse 38. Luke is describing this family tree, and he gets to verse 38. He says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, which is Genesis chapter 5, son of Seth, Genesis 4 and 5, the son of Adam, the Adam, like Adam and Eve, Adam, the son of God. So just in case we were confused, this life of Jesus is a life that connects all the way back to the Genesis story, to the very beginning, right? The first three chapters of Luke's gospel allow us, before we hear Jesus speak any words of ministry, do any works of ministry, that this story is connected to the story, right? That he helps his readers see that in Jesus, God's plan for the world stands up, as the psalmist says, that his designs are made to last. From the very beginning, Jesus is here, right? We're on the same path, move the same movement of history, Having set us up to recognize the identity of Jesus in the first three chapters, Luke then launches into the life of Jesus in chapters four through eight. His purpose, as we just read, to restore and free humanity, inviting men and women to follow him into the restoration and freedom of humanity. And so the stories that flow from Luke four through eight are the words being fulfilled. As Chris read for us, right? In your hearing, these words are fulfilled. This proclamation of good news, this proclamation of liberty, of recovery of sight, of God's favor. And so we see in this first, first eight chapter, four through, chapters four through eight, that Jesus is, all these stories of freedom, freedom from spiritual oppression, from uh, demonic forces, right? From, um, from divine beings who interrupt the, the normalcy of the world and the way hum, humanity is meant to work, right? He comes in and he, and he casts them out. Satan and demons and all those things, right? All the spiritual forces, the, 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 the realm that we have a hard time seeing sometimes, right? But he recognizes those and he casts those out. He removes those from those being oppressed spiritually. But he also heals, the, heals people physically who are in physical decay, whose bodies are not full and whole, right? All kinds of infirmities, all kinds of illnesses. Even leprosy, a disease that, that would not just leave people ill, but cast people out from community, right? They would keep them from being a part of the community, apart from family. And not only does he heal physically, physically those, those just any ailment you can think of, physically the ailments that keep us from one another, but also death, 
In the first eight chapters, he raises people from the dead, calls life into those who seem lifeless. In the first, in chapters four through eight, we also see Jesus freeing from relational imprisonment, from sin. Stories in which Jesus not only heals a person's outward um, deficiencies, what seems to be deficient about them by all those around them, a paraplegic, a woman of the night, but he also forgives them of their sins. He restores what's broken in their relationship to themselves and to the one another and into God. He, he, doesn't just do, and he doesn't just do that with those who have some sort of physical ailment or some sort of overly outward thing. He does it with even somebody who calls into discipleship, Matthew, a tax collector, who's culturally unaccepted and his choices have banished him from the community in some sort of way. And yet Jesus brings him into his fold. He frees from the things that would imprison us from one another and from God. And he also not just frees us from those internal things, the choices that we make, the way in which we live, but also the cultural and religious entanglements that we find ourselves in. Like in, in chapter in, um, six, especially, like we see um, Jesus healing people on the Sabbath on a day of worship, which shouldn't be that odd, right? Like it's like, I mean, it's, it's a Sunday. <laughs> Isn't this where we, like people are supposed to be healed on, on that day? But because of the religious cultural moment which people were in, that was seen as something like that went against the idea of how God actually works on Sabbath and what Sabbath was really for. People that were imprisoned to ideas of how God works, culturally, religiously, Jesus frees them from it through other people, through the healing of others. He frees them from entanglements in their perception of how God is at work in them and around them, what God wants for them. And not only does he do it in just the cultural, the religious setting of like what, how God works, but he also does it in um, the cultural setting of how men and women work together. It's only in Luke's gospel do we have this depiction in chapter eight of Jesus calling females disciples, women into his group. So we always tend to think of the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, but in Luke chapter eight, we're told of these women who are with Jesus and following Jesus. While this doesn't sound like too phenomenal necessarily for us in, in our day at this moment, it would have been a completely revolutionary thing, right? To bring up women in to be, one, women couldn't be apprentices, disciples. That wasn't a part of the Jewish culture at the time, right? They couldn't follow a rabbi. And yet Jesus invites them to follow him. And then not only does he name these women, which is a pretty big thing to do, right? It's a pretty big thing to name particular women, not just say generally that women follow, but he names particular women and he names women who have influence. He, he gives them honor. And so he flips even culturally the expectation of who follows him, not just with those who are kind of outcast, but those who are within. He honors in a way that, um, that frees people from, again, cultural and religious entanglements. All this happens in the first eight chapters. All these things Jesus does, he speaks freedom and people are able to see clearly who and whose they are. He speaks liberty in those who are oppressed, spiritually, physically, relationally, culturally, are free and whole. Men and women, inviting them to live lives with him, inviting them to follow him, but and then in chapter nine, this focus kind of shifts a little bit. So we have in first one, chapters one through three, 
the story gets connected to the story. Jesus' story does. Chapters 4 through 8, the word becomes reality. The word that Jesus spoke and um, that Chris read for us becomes reality. And then in chapter 9, there's this invitation to imitate. To not only be ones who receive from Jesus, but who live like Jesus. And listen, like Matthew and Mark include a similar section um, all the way up front to this point. So chapters 1 through like, like 9.8. So like 80% of chapter 9. Is pretty much a common, all these stories are common in Matthew and Mark and the other, other two Gospels. John's Gospel is a little bit different from all of them, but Matthew and Mark follow a lot like Luke. And these stories are pretty common. This is, this is what Jesus has been doing. This is what Jesus has been telling his people. This is what we think of when we think of Jesus. But, it, but um, in Luke chapter 9, a turn in the preaching Jesus takes, he, he starts and in this kind of chapter 9 movement, he begins to empower disciples to do what he did, which is go and proclaim the good news to the poor. So again, if you look at chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, to free, to, to proclaim liberty. And he sent them out to proclaim, to speak of the kingdom of God, the good news that God is here to heal, right? And so that's what they did. And then in doing so, they begin to see Jesus for who he really is. It's here when they're actually imitating Jesus that in all the gospel accounts, this is when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ in verse 18. He's like, oh no, you're not just a wise man or a prophet or like somebody who's, who's extra spiritual. You're actually the anointed one, the son of God. It's, it's, all, it's here in all the gospels that Jesus is seen in what's called the transfiguration, where he goes upon the mountain and in his full glory, the disciples see him speaking with Elijah and with Moses. His divinity is affirmed in all sorts of ways as they imitate him. And it's also here in this life with Jesus, imitating the life of Jesus, where the disciples discover that Jesus is intentionally on the move to death that the way in which he frees us from all these things ultimately is him dying for us. All the Gospels contain this. This is how all the Gospels move and tell the story. But this is also where Luke begins to differ from the other Gospels. While Matthew and Mark add a couple of stories post this kind of apex of discipleship, this invitation that moves to imitation, that moves to being able to know and see Jesus clearly, where Jesus is going, the way of Jesus through the cross, Mark and Matthew add a couple of stories, they connect that, but then they quickly move where Luke moves a little bit later. They move into the final days of Jesus. Into like Luke chapter 20 through 23 is like the last week of Jesus' life. So we've got like 30 years in Luke 1 through 3, about three years in Luke 4 through 8, two or so years, almost three years. And then we jump ahead to Luke chapter 20 and we've got five days, 20 and 23. Five to seven days. And then 24, Jesus is alive again. Takes us all the way to the cross and even some conversations post-cross. But if you notice, there's like a 10 chapters missing. <laughs> like Matthew and Mark do that. They move from this kind of apex of imitation, invitation to imitation, directly into the story of Jesus' final days. But Luke does something different. In fact, he does something like with 10 chapters different. He takes us through a pilgrimage through a land called Samaria. Luke, what Luke does in the movement between the invitation of imitation to Jesus crucified and resurrection is he takes us on a pilgrimage 
through Samaria. Samaria is a quasi-spiritual, semi-God-hungry, biblically familiar, but religiously apprehensive land. If you know anything about the geography, and well, I, I meant to have a, a picture of this, but we'll have it next week. If you know anything about geography, Galilee takes place here in the north. There's, a, there's like an ocean on this side, right? So Galilee takes place here in the north. Jerusalem's down here in the south. And in between is this land of Samaria. And most of the Jewish people, especially God, God, God people, would go all the way around this Samaritan land to get to Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus walks right through the middle of it. But as we'll see in Luke, it's not a direct line. Like he actually intentionally leads the disciples on kind of this meandering journey through it. This wandering through what would feel like for a Jewish person, especially like the, the last place you want to wander through. The last land you want to live in, especially if you want to be a godly person, right? But this is where Luke's going to take us. Chapters 1 through like 9.8 take place in Galilee. Galilee is a rather God-friendly, highly religious insider context. People who have, for the last at least 200 years at this time, settled in expectation of God's action. God will act. They know the stories. The stories are familiar to them. They've identified with the stories in some sort of way. And so Jesus can directly and explicitly proclaim identity and authority in a way that's connected to life with God, and they'll see the connection. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll necessarily accept the connection or that they'll believe the connection, but he can be real explicit in his conversations. He doesn't have to retell the stories anymore, right? He has to reshape them, but he doesn't have to retell them. Chapters 19 through 20, 19, the last half of 19 through 24 through the end of the book return us to Jerusalem, to, the, to a place where there's kind of the heart of this kind of God-believing country, Jerusalem, to witness the final days of Jesus' life again and then a couple days after his grave. But in the middle, chapters 9.8, the last 20% of chapter 9 through the first half of 19, there's this winding, wandering road through the more normatively secular but religiously familiar land of Samaria. A land that over the next few months we're going to get to know really well, that we'll talk a lot about, and that I think you'll discover is a lot like our land today. It's a lot like the places that we live. It's because of, and it's because of this extended depiction of Jesus' works, his words and stories, his prayers and actions in freeing and inviting people what Jesus does in Samaria is no different than what he does in Galilee, but he just does it differently. What Jesus does in this context is more, a context more like our own, is why I think Luke will be most helpful to show us how to live and speak and step with Jesus today. But here's the thing. Luke didn't start his gospel in Samaria, right? He intentionally organizes his gospel, writes it in a way to get us to Samaria. And so, I think there's a reason for that. And so before we step too far into the path in our Samaritan kind of wanderings, let's take a second to talk about where we find ourselves as ones who have, as Chris read, been freed, discovered that indeed it is good to be in the presence of God so that we might tell of his works, that we might be ones who speak of Jesus. Because honestly, if we're honest, most of us in here, I don't know everybody, but I know most of us, we're, we're a lot like the disciples. Um, most of us step out of Galilee into Samaria 
out of a church faith quasi, um, kind of life, like kind of like this space, but like sometimes in other spaces. We step out of that into a quasi-faith secular world every day. Every morning that we open the, our front doors, we walk out of this kind of Galilean existence of ones who know the stories, know the context, know the history, believe at least to some level what God has done, and we walk into a world that kind of does and kind of doesn't. Has religiosity around it, but, but maybe a little bit different. A, a lot like the Samaritan lands. And we can be like, like a lot of Jews were then. We can be ones who try to avoid that, go all the way around it. Or we can be ones who, like Jesus, actually walks through it. Walks into it. So let's firm up what Jesus says we need to travel well to find ourselves and others along the wandering pilgrimage of Samaria. Because that's what he's doing in the first four chapters, four, first eight chapters of Luke, is he's preparing the disciples to walk into Samaria. To live in a land that's normal, at least secular, and not uberly religious, right? Or whose uber religion, <laughs> uber religion doesn't, uh, doesn't, play out in the same way that it kind of tends to take place in the little bubble of Galilee, right? Let's remember again that the movement through Samaria is to Jerusalem. It's to the cross and resurrection, to death and to new life. So Jesus isn't just going to show us how to live in Samaria. He's going to help show us how to walk through Samaria with others, for others, ourselves, into new life, right? That's the, that's the idea. So what does Jesus want his disciples to know before setting out on that pilgrimage? What does he want them to know? Again, the Galileans, the ones who were kind of somewhat expecting God to work, wanted God to work, kind of knew the stories, knew enough to kind of get in on Jesus on the front end of things. What does he want them to know? Well, he wants them not just to know, but to be free from the cultural religious ideas of God himself. He wants the same thing that he started off proclaiming for everybody, right? that they would be poor and in their poorness, in their neediness, would have all their needs met. That they would be freed from all the depressed, remember whose and who they were and discover and live in the favor of the Lord. His delight. That's what he wants for them. But he knows he needs to free them from what kind of binds them before he can take them into Samaria. Not fully. They don't have to be completely free. As we'll discover along the way, the disciples are still learning to be free in the midst of Samaria, which a lot of us are, right? <laughs> so how does, how does God do this? How does Jesus do this? Well, I think the epitome of it comes in Luke chapter 6. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 6, starting in 17, this is where Jesus kind of gives his, I think, his kind of foundational plumb line lane truth of what, what he wants for the disciples and how they're going to be ones who can, can move through Samaria well, who can for themselves discover what's true and therefore be ones who speak what's true, right? Of them and for others. So Luke chapter six, verse 17. We're just gonna walk through Luke six seventeen through 49 together. Luke 17, six, verse 17 says, and he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place. Just happens to be level. We're talking about laying a level foundation, right? Just, this is the way the scripture is right. It just happens to work out this way, right? 
with a great crowd of his disciples, those who are, who are in with him, right? Those who are following him. So men and women who have said there's something about Jesus and Jesus' life with God and the life that he says is mine and God that I want. And not just ones who are disciples, but also a great multitude of people. A great multitude of people who are just kind of interested. Maybe they just wanted something from Jesus and not necessarily the life of Jesus. All kinds of things, right? Like we've seen that in all the stories. We, we've been those people. We are those people, right? Sometimes we want to be a disciple of Jesus, but sometimes we just want to kind of be around enough to kind of get the benefits or we're curious enough to hear because we're at a place where we want to hear, we need to hear something that is, is good, good news, right? So there's a whole, a whole group of people from Judea and Jerusalem to the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, so even farther north. So north, south, this whole land is covered, right? And they came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, to receive the freedom that he's proclaimed. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Again, the things that oppress. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. But then verse 20 says this. It says, and then Jesus lifted up his eyes on who? On his disciples. So the words we're about to read, while spoken with everyone around, are spoken to those who have said, hey, I want to follow him. I'm in, right? So he's saying these things to his disciples in the context of people who may or may not want to be disciples, but who want something, need something for outside of themselves, right? Who need God in some way and recognize they want God's interaction in their life somehow. And they're curious about it or they're desperate for it and they're kind of all at that stage, right? Like they're all somewhere around this neediness of God to a degree. And they've been willing to come and listen to Jesus. But Jesus looks to his disciples who are in the midst of this crowd. And he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Again, in Matthew, when we hear this same word, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. But Jesus says here specifically poor, because he wants them to get the idea of neediness. There's one thing to be a humble spirit, right? Poor in spirit. And we think humility. But this is like, no, you need to be needy. Like already blessed means already happy, whole. Already happy are you who are needy. All you need to be is needy. For yours is the kingdom of God. And you, for yours is life with God. And all that is God's is yours, right? That's what Jesus says, right? All you need to be is needy. This is the key, right? All you need to be is needy. All you need to be is needy. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who long for something more than the brokenness of this life, the waywardness of this life, the, the apathy of this life. Blessed are you who are hungry for more life, for you'll find more life. It'll be given to you. Whose life will be given to us? Jesus' life. What kind of life? Life now and life forever. That's what we know, right? We know the end of the story. It's helpful. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep, who mourn for the brokenness. That even though you are being satisfied, even though your needs are being met by God, who you mourn for the reality of brokenness in you and in others, you mourn for the neediness that God needs to do, that Jesus, needs, that Jesus will need to die, that God needs to save, that things are off. For you will laugh, you will experience joy in your mourning, 
You will come through mourning into joy. So this isn't like a naivety of like, yay, I've got it, I've arrived. This is a, no, I've received, but I'm still longing for more. And I see the brokenness of the world and long for the world not to be broken. Blessed are you then when people hate you. This, is, this, is, this one gets fun, right? Blessed are you when people hate you, because we all desire that. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now, this happens a lot, right, in today's world? I mean, not to your face, just through Twitter and Facebook, right? Like, no, yeah, no, nobody, nobody actually hates you when they're in a room with you, but they'll hate you, like, through digital things, right? But listen to this. It's not just that people hate, hate one another. Like, that's been going on for a long time. Like, in humanity, like, we're, we're really good at not liking one another and acting evil towards other. It's really easy to keep people at a distance, right? For any sort of reason. You don't have to have any sort of reason to not like somebody to not like them, right? That's what's proven in our culture, in our society, right? There, there doesn't have to be a justifiable thing. But listen, that's not what he's saying. He's not already blessed are you just because people don't like you because of their own little, like, issues, Right? Because of whatever thing, whatever opinion you have or whatever. He says, they don't like you on account of the Son of Man. Verse 22, on account of me. That you following me, remember he's talking to those who follow me. You're living like me, saying the things that I'm saying gets you into trouble. It rubs somebody the wrong way. Because listen to what he says after this. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. He's being a little hyperbolic. But, you know, rejoice in your being hated. Being hated. For your reward is great in heaven. For listen to this, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So who are the ones who hate? Who are the ones who hate? The ones who are following the way of Jesus. Where's the tension coming from? Well, he says it right here. Their fathers did to the prophets. Well, who are the, who, who's, what prophets did to what fathers? <laughs> These are insiders. These are religious people. Church people, Jews, Israel. He's not talking about like the world outside of us hating us. He's talking about those inside who get on to you because the way you live, again, remember what Jesus is doing. He's trying to break down the cultural and religious entanglements who, whose way of seeing God, thinking about how God works is in conflict with the way God actually works in Jesus. When they revile you, you're just like the prophets who none of them had it good, <laughs> right? Who nobody believed them. And yet, who, as we saw in the first three chapters, what they said comes true. And God coming to rescue in Jesus. God sending his son in Jesus. God declaring in Jesus liberty, freedom, sight. That's Isaiah, the prophet, who said that, right? And then Jesus says in verse 24, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. In other words, woe to you who get everything out of life you want. Because that's all you'll get. If you go after everything that you want, you'll get it. But that's all you'll get. And as we saw last week in Psalm 73, that's just a dream a phantom that floats, right? We can never get all that we want. We always want more. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you. How bad is it for you that you've got to ache for 
for, for, uh, for food, right? We think in the first, blessed are you who are hungry. But he's saying, no, no, no. It's actually like much worse to, be, to think you're satisfied and discover later that you're actually not. To think that the job, the success, the career, the identity that you needed is all you needed and find out that it's not. How bad is that for you? How horrible is it to be in a place where you thought if you get this, if you receive this, if you live this, if you have this, then everything will be good and you get there and it's not. That's really sad. Woe to you. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who think, hey, again, talking to insiders, what do you think you've got this all figured out? You get to laugh at the world. You get to laugh at everybody else. You get to laugh at all the ones who, who don't understand and don't get it right. Because guess what? At some point, you're going to mourn brokenness, your own brokenness. You're going to weep when you discover how needy you actually were. Woe to you when all people, verse 26, speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So their fathers did to the ones who didn't speak for God, but spoke of their own desires. So Jesus, in the first 20, verse 20 through 26, kind of shakes the ground of the disciples. He shakes their foundations of like, listen, all I want you to be is needy, hungry for more life, life from God. All I want you to be is one's who are mournful over your own sin and the sin of the world, the brokenness around you and in you, and to be ones who, because you follow me, are willing to step out of the cultural and religious entanglements. That's all I want. That's what I, that's what I want. Now, that's not, what, like, that's not what you're gonna hear on the synagogue, Jesus says. That's what verses 24 through 26 says, right? That's not what you hear in the synagogues, but that's what you hear from me. That's not what you hear in the church, but that's what you hear from me. And he says it this in verse 27. He says, but I say to you, now he's shaking the foundation, now he's gonna relay it. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that, and, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus shakes the foundation of the life that he expects for the disciples and says, hey, listen, there's this hunger and this thirst for life with God. And the way you're going to receive the blessed life of God is to love your enemies. To give to those in need and to give in a way that seems absurd. To live kind of absurdly and to treat others almost absurdly because it's actually the way you want to be treated with mercy and grace, sacrifice, love that we are to be ones who speak blessing instead of cursing, who pray not just, for the, not just for ones who we like, but for those who are actually against us. And just in case we miss it, verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. Even sinners. So he's not, he's not saying like, 
oh, if you love, if you, if you pray for those who love you, you're not a sinner. He's like, no, 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 that's what, that's what sinners do, right? Loving people who love you is just what broken people do. Everybody does that. That's what you do. But you're, you're not just that, right? Like, let's keep going. He says, for, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, Jesus says, hey, listen, treating, treating people like loving people who love you, being good to people who are good to you, um, not talking trash to them, uh, being generous to those uh, around you in a way that at least gets you back what you gave to them. That's just normal human operation in which you all are. <laughs> normal human operators. But aren't you, don't you want more than that? Don't you want more than to just love those who love you and be loved by those who love you? Don't you want more than to do good to those who do good to you and to have those who do good to you more than, I mean, I get tongue-tied. Don't you want more than just those who do good to you to do good to you? Right? Don't you want your enemies to do good to you? Right? I mean, don't we? Don't you want more than just to be lended what you needed and the expectation of paying it back? And wouldn't you rather just receive generosity? I mean, isn't that what you want? Because listen, like if, if not, then just keep living the way you're living because you're all sinners. Like we're all sinners. Like that's just the way humans live. We love those who love us, do good to those who good to us and give so that we get back. But if you want more than that, there has to be something else. That's what he says in the next verse. He says, verse 35, but instead love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be what? Not just sinners, but sons of the most high. And the idea of sons here isn't just a male thing. It's this idea of being the one who inherits, the one who has all that is the father's, all that is a child of God's. You'll be inheritors of life and life in its fullest. So do you want more? Do you want more? Well then, love those who are against you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Be merciful, and I love this. And so verse 35, again, love your enemies, do good to and land expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the most high. For he that is the most high is kind to who? Who do we expect him to say before you go, if you haven't looked at it yet? Who do you expect the most high to be kind to? Who do we expect it? The insiders, right? Like he just said, the sons of God. We expect him, we expect him to say, like, listen, you'll be sons of, of the most high, and, and the, the one who's most high is good to those who are his sons, his adopted, the insiders, right? That's what he says, right? That's what we think, he, that's what we would expect to say. But instead he says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. How amazing is that? He's not just kind because we're heirs. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. He's kind to, he's kind to us who are ungrateful and evil. And so he says in verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Again, Jesus is wrecking the whole foundation of religion and culture and understanding of who God is for those who think they've got it. Those who have grown up in it, right? And that's, this is the only way he's, they're gonna be prepared to enter a land that isn't this bubble of religion. 
And then he says in verse 37 through 42, he clears up the side of what keeps us from seeing clearly and why we don't see so clearly. In verse 37, he says, after discovering that the call is to be merciful, even as our Father is merciful, to understand that the, to, to, be like, to be like God, to be like Jesus, to be a true imitator of Jesus, is to be one who extends love and mercy and blessing and cursing, not just to those who we think deserve it, but who actually feel like they're out to get us, right? The, the ungrateful and the evil, right? Who, by the way, we all are, right? He's putting the disciples, helping them kind of see themselves in the picture. But then, in case they didn't get it clearly, he says, verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. The favor of the Lord. <laughs> if you don't judge. <laughs> the favor of the Lord, if you don't condemn. The favor of the Lord, if you forgive as you've been forgiven, right? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What keeps us from seeing clearly is our tendency to think that we see clearly. What keeps us from being seen clearly is that our tendency, especially as those who are insiders, right? Like I'm talking to insiders because you're just talking to insiders. So this may not be everyone in the room. It may not be all of us, right? But I'm going to assume that most of us think that we kind of understand how God works, right? And what God's up to. And so we're called to be in. We're invited to follow Jesus, but called to be imitators of Jesus. And what gets us in the most trouble when we decide we want to take that to our friends, neighbors, and family members is that we come out of that thinking that we're able to judge and condemn, right? We're the ones who've got it figured out. Their way, it's them and us, right? But what did we talk about last week in Psalm 73? The psalmist discovers that they are him. He is they, Right? There is no us in them. It's just us. We're sinners who have received mercy. We're ungrateful and evil who have received the Father's kindness. Only because we are needy and hungry. In reality, so are our friends and neighbors and family members, right? Needy and hungry. They're not any different. So why would we act towards them differently? Why do we act towards them in a way that's not the same way God has acted towards us? I mean, don't we want, the very, want God to act towards us the way he's acted towards us in Jesus? Why would we not want that for others? And again, and just in case they miss it, verse 39, and Jesus told this parable. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Listen, You've got to see clearly in order to help others see, right? You cannot be blind to who God is, how God works, if you want to speak of Jesus and the words of God to others. You can't. Because what happens? Won't they both fall into a pit? <laughs> Won't they both get into a lot more trouble if a blind person is trying to lead a blind person? Right? A disciple, verse 40, is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Again, this is the goal, right? They want to be, we want to be like the teacher. We're not above the teacher. We want to be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Let me clean off how you, what's keeping you from seeing, clearly. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, 
you hypocrite. You actor. You're one who's playing a show. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then you'll see clearly. Like if we want to be ones who walk out of our doors into the life where God is actively proclaiming the good news to the poor, liberty to the oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, the the year of the Lord's favor, God's delight, then we have to be ones who see ourselves clearly. Who let God help us see clearly. Needy. Jesus says in verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are gathered, not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Like what is in us comes out of us, right? How like where our hearts are in relationship to God. Like again, think about like, think about it like this and now we'll end it. Think about it like this. So like in Psalm 51, David who at the, at the point where he writes the Psalm has like done everything in kind of the worst things that we can imagine in, in, in our kind of religious world, right? Not just in our religious world, just in, in the world. Like everything that David did and to, to kind of get to the point where he recognizes uh, his own brokenness was like, not only did he um, steal a man's wife, um, have an illicit affair with her, get her pregnant to where she's having a child that's, that's like, why he's, she's still married to him. Then he murders her husband. Like, these are all things that are like horrendous things, right? And this is the man who's after God's own heart, right? Like, like this, is, this is God's chosen man, right? Like, he does all of this. He, he does all of this and finally recognizes in the midst of this how broken he is. And what does he say to the Lord? Like, Lord, I can't make this right. Only you can make this right. Only you can remove the iniquity from me. Only you can cleanse me. I, there, I can't do enough sacrifices, go to enough religious things, do enough good to pay the things back for what I've done, right? I need you to cleanse me. I need you to create in me a clean heart to renew, make new again, bring back to me a heart that's after you. And that actually sees people not as something to be used in the fulfillment of my own desires, but who they are. Who you say they are. To create in me a clean heart. And from this clean heart comes a life that leads sinners into your way is the way the Psalm, David puts it in Psalm 51. Out of a heart that's after God, that recognizes its own sinfulness, right? Its own brokenness. Out of that heart always comes good. That's a heart that God's after, right? That's that's what comes after it. This is what comes out of it. Only when our heart is not, is not after God. Our heart is, is clouded by our own sin, not like the psalmist in Psalm 51 who sees clearly for the first time maybe that his sins are against God, right? That he's broken and off. From that heart, evil comes. But from a heart 
that's open in neediness before God, good comes. And out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, um, Jesus says in verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of our heart, what is abundant in our heart? Is the abundance of our heart a neediness before the Lord? A hunger for a life different than the life that we're living and receiving, a life different than the life that we experience, a mournfulness over our own sin and the sin of the world, the brokenness of our world. Is that where our heart settles? Is that what overflows out of our hearts? A willingness, a want for the way of Jesus? Or is it just, is it full of things that we desire? Riches, satisfaction, ease. And again, like these, it's not a materialistic thing, right? It's like, what do we really want? What is our heart really after? Jesus ends this kind of foundational lane um, preparation for Samaria with these words, and they might be familiar to us, but let's just read them. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Again, he's speaking to his disciples. Why do you say I'm the giver of life? Life itself. The word that made life, the word that is your life, the one who gives you all these things and has showed you how to live. Why do you say that and not do what I tell you to do? This is what every parent says to their child, right? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, listens to the words, what are the words, right? It's good news. God's with you. He's for you. He set you free from the things that oppress. He's given you sight again to see who you really are, truly are. He's declared he delights in you. If you hear those words and do them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a person who builds a house, who dug a deep foundation and laid the foundation on rock. It's solid. It's not going anywhere. And when flood, the flood arose, when the storms of life arose, when the chaos of life came about, the stream broke against the house and could not take it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a person who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of this house was great. So for us, who for the next four months are gonna walk through Samaria, are we prepared? <laughs> are we prepared to enter into Samaria, into the daily life with a heart that's poor, a belly that's hungry, a compassion that draws us into the hurts of others who are willing to, even if it feels like what we think is true about God and how God works to be proven not true. Will we let the word be solid foundation, the plumb line truth of our life with God, ourselves, and others? That's what Jesus was trying to help the disciples before he took them into Samaria. Again, he didn't expect them to have it all figured out. 
they figured it out along the way. But they had a foundation from which to walk upon. To guide them even in what feels like and what will feel like for the next three months or so are <laughs> just random wanderings through this land that we call life. But it's clearly not. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for <laughs> we thank you for the mercy that you pour out to the ungrateful and the evil to those who are insiders and outsiders, to, to the way you flip upside down our expectation of you, of life with you, of how we to relate to one another. And we confess, Father, at times that we feel like we can't live up to that expectation, um, that we're confused by, by it, even that it feels like a completely other and different life, which it is. So this morning, we just, we ask for help. We ask that you your spirit would strengthen us, that your presence would guide us and counsel us, that even when our strength and our hearts fail, we don't end up lost. Thank you for this time. In your son's name we pray, amen.